Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 126th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that has your back even if Wizards keeps showing you theirs. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I am your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter, and my co-host tonight, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, James. Good afternoon. Lovely Saturday here. How about up there? Gorgeous. I'm waving at you across the lake. Can you I see? Can, um, yeah, just about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles with some of the best financial minds in the hobby. That would be us. Yeah. Tra- Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Uh, this week, we have a show in three parts. Segment one is our top movers. We're going to talk about all the cards that have seen the largest price increase over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will run through a few things that we think may rise in price. In segment three, our topic of the week, we have a couple to touch on. We have, in no particular order, the Silver Showcase announcement, the bannings in Legacy, new card backs, a, uh, I assume BBD is Battle Bond reprinting, uh, yep. or Brian Brondoon, one or the other. <laughs> yeah, and you're cloning. If that's not it, then maybe we'll talk about the future of Dual Lands, I guess, too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just throwing that in there. Any more you want to toss in? Get seven or eight more in here before we get to that segment. Uh, I mean, last week last week we did metagame we can review, but no uh, topic. This week we'll do massive topic, no metagame. Sure. Okay. Start out. Segment one top mover. Sylvan Carry did buy a box promos, uh, which are foils. Six and change up to over $12. What's curious here is Sylvan Carry did was a standard uh staple at the time oh yeah and so good yeah it was nuts and is is long gone um but hasn't really broken into modern at all uh you know a couple people have tried but hasn't really ever gained any traction but now we're seeing the price just about double here so the question is is where is that demand coming from uh so somebody's playing with sylvan carry they'd be in it's not anyone building constructed decks well, in, on EDH Rack, it is in 7,400 decks. People run it in all sorts of stuff. Um, and in theory, this could be related to Arcades, right? Because it is a defender. Mm-hmm. So in Arcades, it's a 3-3 hexproof that taps for mana for two. Um, so pretty solid card there. But it also shows up in all sorts of other decks. It shows up in Doran the Siege Tower, Animar Soul of Elements, Prosh, Sky Raider of Care, Atraxa, etc., um, decks that you know have heavy mana requirements and want something that survives everything but sweepers, and so there's also. But I think what you know we were talking about off cast how we think this probably also has um, some casual underpinnings, which is a a, a data um, viewpoint that we don't really have great access to because you know you have to have a player who is engaged enough online to be registering decks for that to generate data either they're playing decks on magic online and that data is flowing through something like mtg goldfish or they're registering decks related to edh and it's flowing through edh rec or people are posting decks in other places or winning tournaments with them if we if one of those things is not happening then we don't have great visibility 
Um, but every once in a while, you see a card move that doesn't seem to be related to any of those things that you know casual play at the kitchen table is probably contributing to. And I have to imagine that with Sylvan Carrotid being such a great, relatively cheap color fixer, um, that is part of the contribution. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair estimation that this is coming from people who want monodorks, I suppose, uh, and don't really care necessarily where they're coming from or like if they're if there's a better way to build the deck, um, you know, they just want that effect. So, okay. Uh, and it's, I guess it's going to be hard to catch these in the future too, right? Like even if we think, okay, well, there are going to be more of these down the road. Uh, I don't know how we're supposed to find them at the moment because we just have no visibility into that data. Yeah, I mean, you have to... It helps if you're involved in the community in question. You're playing a lot of casual yourself with casual players, teaching new players and seeing the kind of decks they build. But even then, you're getting a pretty shallow slice of the pie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I want to have to do is play magic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What do you got next? I wish I wait, wait, wait till you're a dad, brother. You'll be begging to play magic. Mm -hmm. The the next one on the list is one of your picks from a couple of weeks back. Um, that I also said I had sold to early just recently. Um, Solemn Simulacrum uh, Masterpiece Series Inventions, um, jumping again from this time from mid-90s to well over 180, if you believe that plateau. I would figure it will settle no lower than 130, 140 at this point um, before it ratchets up again further down the road. Bottom line is that this card is played in a ton of EDH decks. Um, such a good value utility grind creature. Um, Curse of Possibilities and things like Muldratha, etc. Uh, lots and lots of decks want to have this in the, in the 99. So I'm uh, not tremendously surprised to see it push up. Um, and I believed in your pick so much, even after having recently sold them at about 80, that I used by uh, my eBay bucks credit, which was about $100 over the last quarter, um, to go ahead and repurchase one. The last one I could find on eBay at about 85 last night. Hmm. Interesting. I have um, no doubt that this happened because of the cast. Um, so people are gonna <laughs> lining up to blame us for it. But I also have no doubt that they will sell at $200 and they were going to sell $200 whether we talked about it or not. It just might have taken an extra week. But It's the same old, same old. Yeah. Drawing attention to low supply is quote-unquote, the fault of whoever does that. But the reality is that that supply was low for a reason, and that reason is that people were buying the card. Right. All right. Um, I don't want to so, belabor this. Well, I, I have a pertinent example. Last weekend, um, a lot of noise was made on social media, uh, specifically by the wonderfully kind Jeff Hoogland, um, <laughs> who, is, who is difficult to follow on social media because if you've ever said a word to him, you're probably blocked. Um, but... Uh, it still managed to like seep into my my stream that he was blaming MTG Finance and then attempting to point fingers and laugh after Stoneforge wasn't unbanned, um, which I thought was hilarious because as if anybody in MTG Finance was caught buying Stoneforge Mystic on the, on the spike instead of selling. Um, that the, I sold 11 of the 12 copies I was holding, most of which I picked up while I was in GP Vegas of the GP promo version of Stoneforge. My in on those was 18. My exit was north of 40. Um, so I don't know who he's pointing fingers at, but it certainly wasn't uh, myself or anybody else that was buying in the last three months thinking that this may happen one day. Um, 
there's also latent legacy demand for the card, and we just had an unbanning that puts it in a better position, right? Yeah. So I, I was curious about all of that in terms of what would happen if I offered the people that bought the card to refund them. You know, no big, huge deal, no skin off my nose if you know I have to cough that money back up. So I, I went ahead and offered it to everybody I sold it to on eBay. Not one person was interested in doing that. Hmm. And their explanation in every case was that they were either a collector and they didn't have a copy yet, or they thought they were going to need it for a deck someday. But that, I mean, to have a store message you and say, hey, this card that you might have bought because you thought it was going to get unbanned that then didn't get unbanned, like, you, we'll take it back. Like, we'll just, we will take it back from if you want. You don't have to get stuck with it. And then they're like, no, I'm going to keep it. It's like, okay. Well, I mean, people, people like, kind, of, kind of hard to argue with that. People on Twitter were like, oh, you're so kind. No, I it had nothing to do with kindness. <laughs> I was making a point. I mean, let's make no mistake. I am not a kind well, person. I, I consider myself a kind person in situations where I think that that's relevant. But the this particular instance of activity was definitely not about kindness. I was just probing for data. Um, and it's a small sample size for sure. And other people might have gotten a different result. But I, I think that people wildly underestimate the number of magic players that are attuned to the magic economy and the shifts in the economy just enough to make these kind of decisions while information is in hype cycle. So sure, cards that you might want to buy or sell originate in part from MTG Finance, but they also come from streamers and and content creators and wizards itself through their various announcement cycles and, and content production cycles. And in this case, it was funny because Stu Summers was like pointing the finger back at Jeff Hoogland saying, you know, what the hell are you talking about? You were the one telling people it was probably going to get unbanned. So like, yeah, I was going to ask you if you would notice if you had caught that part of the story. Yeah, and 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 so who's more to blame? The the people that re- responded to that <laughs> that potential, which was real. The fact that it didn't get unbanned, notwithstanding, that's still not a bad decision, even if it doesn't un- get unbanned now. You know, Cliff and I were bantering on on Twitter about how that's probably just because they're going to wait till the next master set. So it could be as soon as next spring. And so if there's a reprint in a master set, then the regular editions are going to fall. But the GP foil promo will just, and in the face of an unbanning reprint, the GP promo foil will probably continue to accelerate up. Mm -hmm. If if Stoneforge comes back into modern, the GP promos could end up eighty to one hundred dollars. So, uh yeah, the, the for sure those promos could move a lot if uh, if we do see a comeback in the standard, regardless of all of this. Yeah. So I mean, the the bottom line is that that you know players move the needle. MDG Finance just nibbles at the crumbs. Yeah. Yeah. We're not. Well, okay. Move fast. Move fast. Next up, Miss Caller foils from Corset twenty nineteen. Seven and change up to about 15 for double up uh, possible sideboard tech in yeah, this, modern. This is, this is the one, one merfolk that lets you basically counter a reanimation spell or similar basically right. stops creatures from coming into play that didn't get cast directly. Yeah. So this was, um, you know, I'm sure Corbin's talking about it over on DSB quite a useful card because it stops all sorts of stuff. Um, I remember somebody talking about it. You get, not only do you get the obvious stuff like show and tell, but you get collected company, uh, all the reanimator type strategies. It's it's uh, through the breach, through the breach. Yeah, it's fairly versatile. Gorio's vengeance. Mm-hmm. So even if you're, I, yeah, I would say it's almost in legacies. Uh, Curse catchers prob- is better, I think, 
But in modern, I think Miss Caller is probably actually better than Curse Catcher because in modern, it's a little slower. So it's easier to play around the one mana attacks on Curse Catcher. Whereas on Miss Caller, this is just a hard stop. Like, I don't care if you can pay the one extra mana for your Gorio's Vengeance. It's just not going to work this turn. Yeah, and I think it, I marked it as sideboard tech because I'm not, I, I don't think Merfolk has the slots to run it main. Um, and you need a meta where, you know, the meta is so fractured in modern, like coming from so many different angles. And there's so many decks where this would not matter at all. Mm-hmm. That it's definitely like, it's the thing that comes in for your dead cards. Um, so where Curse Catcher wouldn't matter, maybe you want this. But, uh, and can... it, it also doesn't affect tokens. So for instance, like against Tron, if you manage to kill. Uh, their worm coil engine, the tokens still hit the battlefield regardless of this being in play. So it is very like pretty specific. Um, and I think that this is largely, uh, I think you're going to get a shot at these lower. I mean, this is a foil rare and I, and the distribution on M19 is going to be a lot higher than battle bond. So people should not get confused thinking that when, what's been going on with rare and mythic foils and battle bond is also going to happen with M19. This, this set will is much more widely distributed. It's going to be drafted you know, a lot over the next month is going to be product floating around. And it's an intended, it's a, it's an intended on-ramp for new players. So it's going to be on shelves all year. Um, so these foils are likely to retrace as a rare um, because sideboard foil, like sideboard foils for modern with some legacy is not the, the super exciting, exciting spot I want to be pouring money into. No. Um, and I will, I will say that I do think this could possibly make it into main deck over some of the other merfolk or over uh curse catcher um but i guess that's neither here nor there for the time being mm-hmm. uh, and even if i i feel like it would be a split regardless but i mean corbin's in a better position to comment yeah i have as someone who has spent my the only time with merfolk telling people that the deck is bad i probably shouldn't be the one to talk about what card they should add <laughs> uh, all right so next on the list we got Wyuli wolf the version two from arabian nights and um, this is just the the march continues on the first few years of magic cards all going up the hill so from 450 to ten dollars if you uh and you'd be looking for you know an exit on your one or two copies into a buy list at some point somebody i got asked three times this week whether i thought random reserve list card x was a sell in all cases i said hold um, I don't think that I think we're on a plateau for a while on some of this stuff if it's already spiked hard. Um, but unless you are a very active magic trader, you are unlikely to outperform your reserve list holdings. Correct. Yeah. Uh, unless you know very, very well what you're doing. Most of this stuff is just a hold. Yeah. Although we will get to a special case once we get to a segment four. Okay. Um, what, do you, what can you tell me about Meteor Golem out of course at 2019? Well, I can tell you that Ethan Fleischer had an interesting little story about Meteor Golem in uh, on Twitter this week. Um, so you can look up his Twitter account. He's got some cool little stories about M19 cards. But specifically, Meteor Golem, the foil copies have jumped from a little under 5 to about $11 for, a little, for more than a double up. Meteor Golem is the 7-mana 3-3 colorless creature, artifact creature. When it comes into play, destroy target non-land permanent, which means that you can destroy artifacts, enchantments, what have you, in any color. Now, this is already available in things like uh, Unstable Obelisk, but Meteor Golem, for some strategies, is going to be much more flexible 
because it's just seven mana right up front. You don't have to like play it and then activate it. And also being a creature, you can do all sorts of goofy stuff with it. Like you can tutor for it, you can bounce it and so forth. So the card, it has a uh, value where unstable obelisk and cards of that stripe don't. Um, so, you know, $11 for a foil uncommon out of M19. Uh, you know, I, I think that that price is going to be relatively sticky because this card is going to be in demand. Uh, but I don't see it rocketing up to 20 or 25 dollars anytime soon um i i didn't realize this was an uncommon i thought it was a rare i had an uncommon i think these are a hard sell there's no way m19 uncommons can hold over ten dollars even if they're going to see a reasonable amount of edh play there's no modern play here i don't think this is a standard card because of the casting cost um so I, i'm much more interested in this in brea like long term as p- that that Brea and other artifact commanders will realize that they can goblin welder this into play, like get it in the graveyard with Duretti or some other looting type effect, and then bring it back with a goblin welder and destroy whatever thing is causing them pain. If you're in a blue, black, red, your black cards can destroy planeswalkers, but almost nothing you have can destroy enchantments. So this is a nice little like utility toolbox piece to be able to pull out of the deck and put to use. Um, but again, as an uncommon from a uh, even though it's a Somerset core, still going to be heavily opened, as I said. So I think these foils will will fall back hard. This is like opening weekend. So foils that are in some amount of demand just don't have a lot of inventory online. So it's easy for the needle to get moved. But I would expect a heavy retrace once a lot of boxes get opened over the next now, I will go on record as saying I think that this could, not that it will, but it could sustain 7 $8. Okay, so I'll put it. We'll check back in on this in a month, just for funsies. I think it's going to get down under five dollars, maybe even under four. Okay, okay. I'm 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 fine being wrong, but I, I I have continually been impressed at how high some of these EDH cards can hold prices when they're in standard, um, regardless of you know rarity that type of thing. So I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, after that is Stifle uh, Modern Masters Almond Cat or Masterpiece Series Almond Cat. Uh, 30 and change up to about 75. Uh, this is almost definitely on the back of Deathrite Shaman's banning because now Canadian Threshold Rug, whatever you want to call it, is uh, is back in business. Um, and Stifle has been a big part of that deck basically forever. Um, yes. So players are returning to their much beloved uh, Nimble Mongoose. Yeah, and this is the, this is the deck with four Delver Secrets, four Nimble Mongoose. Um, which was held down by Delver for two reasons. A, Delver removes um, cards. I'm sorry, not Delver. Uh, Deathrite Shaman removes cards from the graveyard, which makes it harder to get to Threshold, but it also blocks 1-1s really effectively. Um, and then it also runs two Hooting Mandrills, which is some, I have some Japanese foils of that sitting around that I would love to pull out of the box of shame. Um, and it runs four Stifle um, because it can uh, get rid of triggered abilities on other people's fetch lands wastelands um and do all sorts of other random nasty stuff in the format so this is a masterpiece invocation that was just sitting around nobody really cared about and then somebody said hey canadian threshold might make a move let's go in on this i mopped up four copies off a canadian website um that i got for about 32 us um i will definitely lean in and just go ahead and try to flip those within the month because there, a, there's no guarantee that uh, Rug Delver slash Canadian Threshold is going to take a place at the table, a prominent place at the table in Legacy. And B, we've been saying forever, Legacy doesn't really move prices that hard. Uh, 
or, or that reliably. Um, but it, it still does here and there. So we'll see. You and I are definitely in the same boat that legacy generally doesn't matter too much for card prices. However, if we're talking about masterpiece series cards, of which there's only ever, you know, 40 or 50 copies, typically at most on the market, you know, stifle might, might have been a little higher because it was the uh, invocations. Um, that is an instance where I can see legacy moving a card price because supply is so low and, the, and then stifle is exactly a legacy card. Um, so I could see I could see it pushing there for sure. Do, do you know what the art is on the Stifle Invocation? Mm, I have to go look it up. It is it's been a while. It does not make oh. sense. Yeah, that one's. It's just a dude in the Temple of Doom, and water's pouring out of the ceiling. Like yeah. it's, a, it's a chamber, a, a tomb chamber flooding. Yeah, I mean, we well we can be pretty sure if you're playing Invocations, you're not playing them for the art. You're playing them for the border. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that means you have bad taste. This is what well, yeah, I mean, you could people do all sorts of things intentionally because they're ugly and dumb. So sure. Fair. <laughs> I, I maintain that the black, the black and the black cards are still relatively handsome. Um, I mean, not when you start trying to read the text on them um, or really examine like how much kibble is on the cards, but taken at, at a glance, the black tan and gold works better than the other color combinations uh yeah i would agree with that um okay so anyway stifle probably gonna make a, a big splash in legacy i think the 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 turning point here is the pro tour right because we have legacy on deck on the world stage um and if canadian threshold was to post up say two decks in the top eight then that would cement uh stifle foils but we'll get to that in a minute, when we talked about cards to watch. For now, let's talk about Mishra's Factory, the winter edition from Antiquities. Um, looks like somebody posted some copies at under 300. Um, so we're in theory, the movement is from three back to six, but it was already at six before. So really what we're seeing is that these are trading in a relatively broad range, somewhere between three and 600, depending on the day and the platform and who's offering the card and just how near mint it might be. Um, it's the most uh, desired of the four versions. And if you haven't seen them before, there was a spring, summer, winter, and fall, all by the same artist. Um, and uh, all four copies have been on the rise over the last six months. Um, I think these, I, I have a full set of these and some extras of spring and summer. And I think I just bought a signed by Kaja and Filfogio spring edition or something like that. Um, and I'm in no rush to out them <clears throat> because the demand for these is underpinned by old school where this is a very popular land. Phil Foglio is the worst thing to happen to magic guy is awful. <laughs> Just awful. Um, as a person or, you know, his, like his art, art, his art's terrible. Yeah, I don't like it. Either. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, uh, totally on board. It's, it's a very like mad magazine, -y, like cartoony style that I don't think is good for the brand. No. And, um, but it, it, it's interesting because a lot of that came out in the in the art where there are like cartoony figures in the art, like his cartoon um, character depictions are so far off the brand guide now. Um, but I think the factories work work nicely and it's actually a very nice. Set. Uh, I think factory is um, the least obnoxious of the bunch. Like of, of everything he's done, those are the, you know. The least annoying. All right, so next on the list. Uh, after that is uh, High Market out of Mercadian Masks. Foils from Mercadian Masks up to... Uh, wait, where'd it go? 
33 and change up to 75. Um, high market is a long time favorite in EBH cards been around forever. And now we're talking about Mercadian masks, foils. Are we sure this was $33? Like now that I'm stopping at, stopping and looking at that, that seems really low that this would have been that cheap. Like 33 bucks for Mercadian masks foil. I'm poking around to see if I can find copies anywhere else. This is in From the Vault yeah, Realms. Um, yeah, I mean... As it, so it's not on the reserve list. And looking at some price history, this has been floating around in the 35 range uh, for quite some time now. Which is a little yeah, it looks like somebody like bought the remaining copies on TCG Player, but I still see 35 to 50 dollar copies on eBay. So that might actually be a reasonable target this weekend. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not very deep. You no, know, and I would I would have expected this to be more than 35 dollars. I mean, it's been that price forever. Um, so. And, and, you know, nothing really changed <laughs> okay, so. in the last, you know, week to make this suddenly more valuable or, or worthwhile than it was before. But the original foil, they're not not making any more of those. And the card is quite useful in the format. It's a card that I could be reprinted. It's it's not on the reserve list, right? No, because it was in Realms. Well, that doesn't mean anything because Relics has Mox Diamond. Relics was the only one to do that. Okay. So uh, it could be reprinted. Uh, it hasn't been any time recently. It could show up in like a random EDH deck as a non-foil, like in a fall set. Um, if there's a commander that cares about like sacking creatures and gaining life. Um, that would be lovely because then the foils would get pushed even harder. Supply looks relatively low. This looks like a solid pick, to be honest. Although the lowest priced uh, copies at 3716 um, is Troll and Toad. <laughs> who are notorious for not grading correctly and um, for shipping in the weirdest possible containers. Yeah, uh, we, we, you know, we could get into libel territory or something, but let's just say that uh, James and I, I personally have had several poor experiences with that vendor. Yeah, I've had some good ones too, but I've, I've had, I've had more weird, like why did they ship that way? Or why is that grading like that um, with that store than others? And it, it's not an uncommon response they've they've pretty clearly declared that they don't care about that like you can take it or leave yeah. it uh after that yavamaya enchantress seventh edition foils a dollar and change up to three dollar and change um we talked about some enchantress cards last week there's a new one in in uh, m19 that has, or dominari that people are interested in uh so a little bit of a bump on these seventh edition foils uh if you don't have one now would be the time to get one, even if you are, you know, at three bucks, these are still totally fine by because it's a seventh edition foil, which, by the way, there were like 10 other seventh edition foils that were showing up in our list this week, but we cut them all out because we didn't want to talk about all of them. But just it seems to be that uh, people were really pushing on that set of cards in particular this week for whatever reason just decided it, it's on the it's on the radar of speculators and collectors and that's a sure and it's old so surefire way for something to start draining and keep draining for ages yep all right squee goblin nabob from arcadian masks original foils going from 25 to 65 in theory um, I'm not aware of anything that's been making squee suddenly interesting. well notice that this is another Mercadian masks foil uh so, you know, we have High Market and Squee, both Mercadian Mass. We got a bunch of 7th edition foils. Looks like somebody might be might be doing some work out there. 
yeah, I mean, this stuff. We, we have seen <laughs> seen things progress kind of by year. So who, who, there, are pro- pro- there are probably some relatively deep pockets out in the market that have just been going down the list for the last couple of years. Um, don't have any specific evidence on that, but it, it is definitely my feeling based on the patterns we have seen evolve in in these lists over time, having looked at them week to week. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So moving on, Demon of Catastrophe from Corset 2019. This is the 6-6 flying trampler that forces you to sack a creature when it comes into play and only cast two and two black. We have seen creatures like this be good uh, in standard before. Parallels to say something like Desecration Demon that was a big deal in mono black devotion during Theros block. Um, foils in theory going from 5 to 15. Again, this is the kind of thing where even though this is a foil rare, I don't see it seeing play uh, much outside of standard. Um, and I think that the supply is going to fill in the back channel here and push the, the price of this back down. Um, so if you can, if you pop one this weekend at the pre-release, uh, I think you want to trade it out pretty much right away. I am inclined to agree with you that. Pretty good rule of thumb on anything brand new. All right, so we got Polar Kraken, Reserve List, uh, giant ridiculous creature that nobody ever plays from Ice Age, moving from $2 to 5 I think I buy-listed all the copies I had lying around not so long ago because Abu was playing well on them. Um, you know, this probably inches up to $10 over some mid- to long-term period, but I don't think you want to wait around on that. Uh, it's the kind of thing you want to make sure you pick out a bulk because you will find it there uh, frequently. Um, all those old sets don't have rarity symbols, and any set without a rarity symbol means that people are going to mishandle the value in those boxes. So just something to keep an eye out for if you're digging through old stuff. Definitely the type of card that you could find buried. Oh, yeah, this is my breaking ball pick of the week. Polar Kraken from Ice Age. <laughs> No one's going to notice it because no one picks Ice Age, but suddenly you're going to find Polar Krakens or $5. You hear her first. Screw you, Doug. The thing, about, um, the thing about Ice Age is there's so there was so much of that around. Like That was the year where Magic really started to push into overprinted territory and almost stumbled and fell and died um, in the same way that so many games that are like, well, we're really popular and the distribution channel is willing to take on all this product. We should really push for max revenue because who knows how long this is going to last. Like This was the first few years of the game um, and nobody knew it was going to last 25 years at that point. And so they were they had gone from printing 20 times less product to 20 times more product within 18 months. And I remember that summer very clearly. There was Ice Age everywhere. Every sports store had like bajillions of boxes. It was all over the place. And a lot of that is still sitting in people's basements. So if you buy some dude's collection from the mid-90s, reliably you will find a pile of Ice Age and this card could easily be in there. All right, it's, it's, it's actually all Ice Age and Revise. It's never anything else. Having bought as many collections as I have, I guarantee you it is never anything else. <laughs> um. After Polar Kraken, you've got Yavamaya Granger, Foils from Urza's Legacy, a dollar and change up to five. Yavamaya Granger is a three mana two two echo that when it comes into play, you tutor for a basic land and put it into play tapped. Um, this is not good. It didn't get good. It's just a foil Urza's Legacy card. Mm, I can run this in Maldratha. Sure, but you could. Because it's repeatable I, three mana for a basic. I guess, like, because if your Wood Elves doesn't die or whatever, you can just play this or you get to kill this. I guess. It's a little more flexible than Wood Elves because Wood Elves can only get forests, but 
Well, there's like duels. there's several creatures of that nature that you could yeah. instead. I, I I I will give you that this is could conceivably be better in Moldrautha, but I also think that in general you're not going to have any problem having cards in the graveyard in Moldrautha to cast anyways. So yeah. like killing your own creature like this just to be able to cast it again is less useful than just having the one one sit on the battlefield and get in the way while you and do I, other more important things. And I have Yavimaya Elder in this slot right now. Um, which lets you search for two basic land cards, reveal them, put them in your hand, and if you pay two and you when and sack it, you draw a card. Um, so the card advantage is significantly more. Yeah, um, and the art's fantastic from uh, the commander printing, I believe. Yeah, one of them was quite cool. Um, uh, yeah, it's only been reprinted in Commander and Commander Anthology. All right, what what do you got for us after that? Stunning Reversal Foils from Battlebond, the march to target the Mythic Foils from Battlebond in the wake of very low supply through the distribution chain continues on. Uh, this card isn't seeing meaningful play anywhere yet, as far as I know, but the Foils were still targeted regardless. They went from about $20 to, say, 60 or 70 I don't know if anybody's able to actually sell them at that price, um, because unlike Brightling and some of the other cards that we'll talk about from this set, um, the the demand pattern is not well established. This card could end up in a cool combo deck at some point. I just haven't seen a list table that made sense. Yeah. Uh, after that is Batter Skull foils from New Phyrexia, thirty to a hundred. Um, people thought that uh, Stoneforge Mystic was going to get banned or unbanned, and it was not unbanned. And now Batter Skulls are expensive. Uh, I mean, that's basically what I suspect was going on there. Um, nothing more than that, really, right? Like, yeah, this got dragged along for the ride, right? This, yeah, this was yeah. people thinking, well, if you need one, you need the other. Thing is, you don't run four copies of Batter Skull the way you run four Stoneforge. Um, <laughs> no. but I also think that it's hard to go wrong with a card that sets up shop, even if it's only a one or a two of, but has persistent presence in a format like modern, like an eternal format, like either modern or EDH or legacy. Um, Anything in those three formats that's been there a long time and looks like it will be forever, um, the original pack foil will get there. Like it might be a mid to long term hold in some cases, but I just recently picked up uh, like a late night eBay purchase, an original pack foil spell skite, and an original pack foil sword of the meek, future sight and fifth dawn respectively. Um, no, new Phyrexia respectively, um, because yeah, those cards are going to get re reprinted here and there every three to five years, but the original pack foil drains and drains and, and eventually there are basically none left. And if somebody wants something, they will pay a premium for the pack foil. I'm, I'm a, a touch concerned just because the pack foil batter skulls are ugly. They're not a good looking card. And uh, neither were the GP promos for that matter. Um, but I think if you're at the same time, if you're the type to be seeking out the pack foils, you don't really care all that much. You know, we tend to talk about the art a little bit, like, oh, it's ugly, so people don't want it, whatever. But uh, I don't think a lot of people care that much. Well, and people, dis as much people as disagree, too, right? Right, right, right. That's the other part of it, too. In general, I think you and I, for whatever reason, probably overvalue art a little bit more than some people do. And you don't sure. need a lot of people who don't care in order to make the old, ugly version expensive. Well, for instance... The announced judge promo this week for Vampiric Tutor. Yay or nay? I see. I think that's a really cool artwork. First of all, I'm annoyed because I had picked that as a 
a card as a pick of the week like a couple weeks ago. But whatever. That aside, I think the art's really funny looking uh, and I like it. But I don't like it in the sense that I'm like, this is great art for the card. It's more like this is just really amusing art that I enjoy looking at. Was your pick the Eternal Masters version? No, it was a judge promo specifically. The one with uh, the vampire over the guy's shoulder? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that that this impacts that at all, to be honest. I mean, it definitely, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt much, but it doesn't help. True. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that these are, are going to be uh, divisive. Like, definitely the reactions were mixed. Um, I don't yeah. like the art because I don't like the Spanish conquistador vampire motif of Ixalan all that much. I, I really want things that are called like demonic tutor or vampiric tutor or doomsday. I want the art to be just dripping with malice. And this guy just looks like an annoying bureaucrat that's going to waste two hours of my time while I try to get $10 off my cell phone plan. Uh, I think that's very fair. And I have certainly enjoyed a lot of the old magic cards that were really, you know, back in the 90s when parents were worried about their kids getting into the occult. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, I want those magic <laughs> cards, right? Like, the original Demonic Tutor is yeah. really good. Like, Lord of the Pit, uh, those types of cards yeah. that, you know, feel evil, evil. in your hand yeah. were really cool. So this variation on that is much less evocative for me. Um, but, you know, such is, such is the way that marketing goes. Yeah. Newer players probably don't realize that back in the day, um, I think in revised edition of Demonic Tutor, they took the pentagram off, right? Yeah, it was Unholy Strength. He had a pentagram behind right, him right. and they removed it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's demon worship. I, I have two friends in Barbados that have been playing magic with me for 20 years. And it's never caught on there. You can't buy the product anywhere. And the explanation was that any that games like that, other than Pokemon that are, that seem totally innocuous are, are, are still perceived as demonic by their like relatively hardcore Christian right wing. Hmm. <laughs> and people like would think that you're like, like playing with tarot cards basically. Yeah. And that they're, they're calling the devil. Yeah. I mean, different cultures are going to react to that differently. Right. Mm hmm. So anyway, moving right along uh, through our massive list here. Temporal Adept foils from Urza's Destiny, moving from $5 to $15. EDH Wizards, low supply, not much to see there. Argothian Pixies from Antiquities, moving from $1 to $3. Just a, a random card nobody wanted forever that is caught up in this 93-94 targeting. Not the format, the years. Brightling from Battlebond, moving from, these are the non-foils, moving from $5 to $20. And this is uh, definitely speculation getting out ahead of latent demand on the premise that with Deathrite Shaman's unbanning, Death and Taxes will be a better legacy deck. And that the best explanation I heard about this is that Brightling is Stoneforge plus Batterskull in one. Uh, I, God, I don't even know what the card does. Let me look at it. So it gets, you can get it, make the front end bigger or the back end bigger, similar to other Morphlings in the, in the past. Um, but you can return return it to your hand for one white. So if you've got four up when you play it, you can dodge removal, but not counter spells, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got lifelink built in if you if you pump one white into it. So <clears throat> the idea here is that it's creating life swing that creates, opens up tempo advantage, and that it's hard for point removal to remove if you've got the mana up, although that's not a guarantee in Legacy for sure. Um, but the deck that it's being played in tends to pressure mana on the other side. 
because um, it tends to run a bunch of strip mine style effects and taxation effects. Um, and that Breitling leads, leans into that and can take on Stoneforge slash Batterskull slots. Um, I mean, so I suppose so. Uh, I guess, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to be doing all three of these at once. So, or you're, you're probably not trying to do everything that this card does all at the same time. Um, so just being able to be like, okay, right now I want the lifelink or right now I need the vigilance type of thing. Right now I want, uh, more, wait, did it do power and toughness? Yeah. Right now I want more toughness. So like, you know, it, it fills whatever hole it need, you need it to in that moment. Um, I, I can buy it, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know enough about the deck to really say, uh, and buying these for, a leg- buying non-foils for a legacy deck that I don't particularly love uh, but I suppose it's mythic and if it is good enough that you're playing four copies of it um, then the price can be higher I, su- I suspect they're only going to run two copies if they run it and I don't think it's earned its slot definitively so I think that that in this case if you can if you've got if you were part of this and you bought a bunch of copies at five and you can exit anywhere over 15 Boom, slam dunk, pocket your money and move on. I completely agree Um, there because, you know, it could end up better. I'm not going to say that it won't end up at turn. It's not going to turn out as like an awesome card in that deck. And it's going to be a four of and the price will go to 30 bucks. All very possible. But the odds of that are so low. Like, who cares? Just take your 30, your 15 bucks and run. And the other thing is, this is all highly theoretical because we don't know how this format's going to shake out now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, this could be, I mean, I'm willing to say that this is, uh, semi-independent from the death rate shaman bannings like oh death rate shaman there or not someone's putting that someone put this in their death and taxes build and tried it out and was like oh this is good um so you, you don't whether or not death rate shaman's in the format this can still be a useful card the, the premise being though that people are saying that death and taxes is better in against what remains of the format given that storm lost gataxian probe and drs is gone yo sure i mean i i'm not saying it's not part of it but like it must, basically, it, DRS was like the lynch, the cornerstone of Grixis Delver as much as anything, right? Yeah. And some soul type Delver builds. And the idea there was that they did that. That deck was so low slung that it didn't care much about the taxation effects, and it was harder to pressure their lands because they didn't need as many. And some of the other decks, you know, things like whatever Show and Tell or whatever they're going to end up facing, is are not. Uh, care more so we'll see how it plays out um we'll also talk about the supply side of battle bond shortly um moving right along great furnace from mirrodin uh this is a foil artifact land that is legal in edh which surprised me i should be running these in my brea deck <laughs> clearly i'm not optimally built yet um moving from 15 dollars to 75 this was printed ages ago i don't see them reprinting it anytime soon um Making your lands artifacts is so busted, given everything else that goes on around artifacts and magic. Um, the uh, the others of the artifact lands, specifically Seed of the Synod, are also on their way up uh, over time, given uh, the lack of reprints. Um, so if you've got a, a couple of these foils sitting around in the back of a binder somewhere, maybe you want to think about trading them into something important. Uh, Wild Cantor from Guild Pack foils moving from $2 to almost 10 This is on the back of probably Saffron Olive featuring this in a popper deck uh, called One Land Spy, which is too complicated to get into right now, but you might want to look it up on YouTube. Um, 
people have been drawing attention to that combo deck in that format, and Wild Cantor is run as a four of there. Okay. Then Perimeter Captain from World Wake foils uh, 50, 60 cents up to $7. Perimeter Captain is the one mana 04 defender from World Wake and Uncommon. Whenever a creature with defender you control blocks, you may gain two life. So this is definitely an arcade's inclusion. Basically, it says whenever any of your creature was blocked, you gain two life. I don't know what EDH these people are playing that they're blocking that much, but sure, whatever. Um, that's, that's that's the idea there, I guess. Uh, I mean, if seven bucks, sure, I would sell the hell out of this card at seven dollars. Yeah. And then our our biggest mover of the week is a bit of a mystery. We seem to have misplaced our knowledge as to why this thing is important. <laughs> so somebody fill us in. Rift Sweeper uh, foils from Modern Masters moving from a dollar to 14. This is an uncommon, so it's not played in Popper. Um, it retrieves uh, cards from your exile zone, puts them into your deck, and lets you shuffle. I'm assuming this is being put to use with some specific commander in uh, Commander EDH, but I can't think of which one. Yeah, I... W- the best we can come up is maybe you're using it to uh, <clears throat> put your own stuff back in your deck. But like, why is that suddenly good now and it wasn't before? Maybe somebody knows something we don't. Maybe it's insider, insider knowledge. I bet it's insider knowledge. That's the explanation that makes <laughs> us look the most competent. So yep, let's go with that one. Information that Wizards is secretly passing to vendors, of course. Yeah. It's part of the All global right. Illuminati, magic Illuminati. Uh, All right, we plowed through our pile of top movers. Let's move on to cards to watch. I'll dive in with my first pick of the week. Um, if the stifle, the ugly stifle invocations can move, then I would be next looking at the judge foils that use the same art as conspiracy. Um, judge foils are still out there to be found around $25. These could easily hit 40 if the stifle hype train continues. Um, if Canadian Threshold becomes a thing in Legacy, or people just think it will be for the next month or so, you probably get a chance to get in on these and get out. Um, Judge Foils don't have any point of resupply. Um, you definitely want to do want to cross-reference against the Conspiracy Foils, because uh, since they do use the same art, they are very similar, and uh, do a reality check on how deep the inventory is there. But I believe when I looked at it last night, it wasn't particularly deep on that side of things either. So I went ahead and picked up, as I said, a, a few, a small handful of the masterpieces and a small handful of the judge promos, you know, relatively shallow probe into this space um, in support. I mean, I'm, it just seems patriotic to buy up Canadian threshold cards from my perspective. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm happy to have like, a play set or two of this stuff and see if there's a chance to unload the next 60 days. Sure. I think that's totally fine. Um, <clears throat> Stifle is definitely going to be a lot more popular right now, speculative or realistically uh, whether people, yeah, it, it's going to move because people are going to be going back to that deck, especially if you were on Grixis Delver already and you're like, well, what do I do now? Like Canadian Delver, Canadian Threshold Delver, whatever, isn't that far off. Um, you know, you get to keep some of your cards, I guess. Actually, you know, I say that out loud, but now that I'm thinking about it, I guess, truth be told, the ch- cards that you have to swap over, the cards that are the same between the two decks are probably all the cheap cards. It's probably like you have to buy Tarmogoyfs and like different duels. Maybe that doesn't matter. So maybe all the Grixis Delver players don't move over to Rug. They move over to like another Grixis or Blue Black deck. But then again, the type of people to play Grixis Delver are probably going to want to keep playing that strategy. Le- Legacy players tend to like their their archetype. So the guys playing tempo with Grixis Delver might want to just continue to play 
tempo just with different colors. So maybe they'll fork over. I mean, if you're playing legacy, you're willing to, to make the shuffle to the different colors. In any case, stifle stands to uh, win on this change. Taking a look at the conspiracy, the depth of the conspiracy supply, you see a real steep ramp. So you can get $13 copies of the conspiracy foils. If say you want them for yourself, that's basically your cheapest option. Um, but it very quickly gets up into the $20 range. And I think that they are going to end up mirroring the judge promos pretty quickly. So I think either of those are a good target. Um, I didn't even mention that, you know, the original printing of this card is actually from Scourge, which was years and years ago. Um, those foils are much more shallow. You've got like one copy on TCG at 50 bucks. That's probably a buy because the, the, the pack foils could post up between 80 and a hundred if the rest of this moves upward. Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. So my first pick of the week is torment of hellfire. This is the, uh, spell from Amonkhet and it is a X black, black sorcery, uh, repeat the following process X times. Each opponent loses three life uh, unless they sacrifice a non-land permanent or discard a card. So if you pay like seven mana five times, your opponents either have to lose three life or sack a permanent or discard a card. The reason I like this is that this has been relatively popular in EDH already. The price is a little higher. It's like four bucks, four to five bucks for the non-foils right now. Um, And like no one's playing this in Constructed. So this is all EDH demand. People really like the effect. Add into that that we're getting a new Nicol Bolas, uh, new legendary Nicol Bolas in M19 that you can now play as your commander gives you um, a little a little bit stronger than some of the other Nicol Bolas options. Um, you know, you now you can take the the original Elder Dragon Nicol Bolas and push him into your 99 and play the new one as your commander, who also flips into a pretty solid Planeswalker. And I've already seen a couple people talking about building Nicol Bolas decks. Yeah, I, I believe in that. That's easily going to be a thing. Yeah, so Torment of Hellfire is a Nicol Bolas card with the flavor text, by the way, of Your God Pharaoh Has Returned. <laughs> um, and it's a very powerful card anyways. So I like foils right now at around $9. Um, I think they were they were that price before all of this happened. So as players decide to start building Nicol Bolas decks, that card, which is already good in EDH, people are going to, you know, you might want to pick it up now for your Nicol Bola stack, and you're going to be like, well, I might as well get the good one because it's a good card anyways. Uh, so I like these up to probably about $20 right now. Yeah, and these foils are on a steep ramp, limited supply already, and for something from that hasn't even rotated out of Amon Cut and is only useful in EDH to already be this low supply um, is really good sign that it's going to continue up. I also don't think this is the kind of card you see for there's no way this gets printed within three to five years. No. I mean, and if maybe, it does, as a, maybe as an, in an EDH deck, right? Like in a maybe. commander product, but even maybe. that's pushing it. But not a foil. No. Um, so I think these foils are rock solid um, on, you know, you might get a chance to out them in three to six months. And if you have to hold for 12 to 18, no biggie. Yep. All right. So my next pick is cons- Recruiter of the Guard Foils. If you believe in death and taxes and legacy, or just think that this card is continuing, has open-ended synergy in EDH, um, where it's registered in 5,500 decks or so, um, I see the the pack foils going from uh, from 70 to say 100, and I think that the non-foils are likely to get from 15 to 30. Um, as people start to explore death and taxes uh, and the EDH demand continues to drain the supply. Keep in mind, this is from Conspiracy 2, which is a set that was not quite as uncommon as Battle Bond is pr- proving to be, um, but was still uh, is probably second in line in the next, last four years or so for uh, underprinted sets. 
And uh, I picked up, I think, 10 of these at 13 a piece with an eBay coupon recently. Um, feeling pretty good about that purchase. And I think that if you get in anywhere near 15, you're probably doing well as well. Okay. I really like this. Um, I think Conspiracy 2 stuff is really good right now because it's the kind of thing where we've mostly sort of forgotten about it. Um, you know, it's not on my the forefront of my mind. Uh, and then you say this and it's like, oh, yeah, this is out there. People are still buying those cards. People are thinking about it. But I feel like we as a community have kind of forgotten about it a little bit, which positions it really well um, to quietly sneak up in price. And then you're going to look back at it and be like, this is $25. Wasn't this $15? And like, oh, I guess I missed that. Um, it's exactly that type of set. And those those prices can move and catch you off guard. It's around the price point where it could show up in a fall commander deck um, as a reprinting. Um, if it dodges that this year, you're going to have plenty of time to exit um, because there's no way they print this into standard, right? Like this is this is seems innocuous, but it could be format warping. Mm hmm. Um, because creatures with two or less toughness <laughs> leaves the door wide open to go abuse something. Yeah, that is, any any sort of tutor in standard in general, if you're tutoring something other than a basic land, is is problematic. Can be problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, on that note, I saw this pick and I was like, "That's a good pick on James's part." I want to go do a little digging. Uh, you know, what one of the most popular foil cards in Conspiracy Two is. This kind of blew my mind. It is a common. And it is, oh, wait, what is the name of that card? Shoot, I should have looked this up. Uh, not Palace Sentinels, Thorn of the Black Rose. Does that sound about right? Yep. Yeah, the, Thorn the, of the Black the Rose. The one that gives yeah, makes you the four monarch. Four mana, one, three, common from Conspiracy 2. Uh, one of the best-selling cards on TCG Player from Conspiracy 2. It's just, when it comes into play, you become the monarch. Uh, Non-foils are, are nothing, but foils are 10 bucks. Um, now, it's only in 400 and some odd decks on EDA track. But clearly, people are buying this card if the common foil is ten dollars. Yes, I got an answer for you on that one. That is a popper card. Okay, it's in all sorts of mono black and black red popper decks because becoming the monarch uh, in that format is pretty busted. For people that don't remember, I think when you become the monarch, you draw an extra card at the end of the turn or something, right? Yes, at the end of the turn, you draw a card if you're the monarch. Yeah, so that's so the idea is like <laughs> getting you can a take second draw step is pretty good. Yeah. And then the there's the white one, Palace Sentinels, is a four mana two four. Um, that when it enters the battlefield you become the monarch. Same thing, it's in white instead of black. Uh, that's another one where the foils are six or seven dollars. Um, that that one I believe shows up in Death and Taxes and Legacy, right? Uh it might. No, I'm not gonna tell no, you no, it no, doesn't. No, no, I've got that wrong. That's also a popper card, Palace Sentinels. Because okay. it's common as well. Well, here's here's the deal. I'm looking at these and like, all right, there's a trend. I'm thinking Knights of the Black Rose. It's a five mana four four uncommon. Does the same thing when it enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. Um, and then if an opponent becomes a monarch, they lose two and you gain two. But that's not what I'm worried about here. I'm just looking at this like it's another card, same colors, little better power and toughness. Does the same effect. Foils are currently a dollar and change. Supply is really low. It looks like there are. 14 foil near mint copies of this on TCG player right now. So not deep at all. Um, now is the fact that this is uncommon rather than common, a really big deal. Maybe, uh, I don't know for sure. It's hard for me to get a feel for that. Um, but I do think that if the other two are $10 foils and this is a dollar 50, 
uh, I am very curious. Especially, you know, and it's not like Knights of the Black Rose has has a lot of supply. There aren't 30 vendors with 70 copies, 80 copies. There's 14 copies. So someone's, someone's got to be card. buying these things. Yeah, and it, and it probably isn't speculators. Yeah. The um, I don't know. I mean, the pick. I would say the pick is loose, but you're right about the supply. People are buying copies. Um, the the problem I see with this card is that it's basically a five mana one sided howling mine in EDH where you have way better options. Um, becoming the monarch, all of that just to get an extra card every turn, and and if they kill it, um, then <laughs> I mean, there your, your, your trade offs are loose. The, and the second ability on it is totally useless, right? Whenever an opponent becomes the monarch, if you were the monarch as the turn began, that player loses two life and you gain two life. That would be cool if it was a common and could be played in popper alongside the other ones, because then you would have this kind of like dynamic in the meta game about who's the monarch. Um, and and it doesn't show like major usage on EDH Rex, so we can't be confident in the in the EDH sourcing on the card. But it's not in zero decks. It's in like eight hundred or something, right? Yeah. And it's and I I wasn't sure what to think of this, but I'm like, the supply is so low. It's not like it's not like all things held can held the same. It's basically it 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 doesn't seem like the rarity is that big of a deal because the supply is still very low. So I, the, the funny, the thing that people need to remember about becoming the monarch is that it can, tr- you now have put the monarch in play. <laughs> yeah. So, which means you so because it gets, they can take, become the monarch by dealing combat damage to the monarch. So once you put that out there, you want to be the aggro deck that's attacking every turn. Um, because, and it can't just be direct damage. It has to be attacking damage. So you have to be the deck that's going to get through more than everybody else to get. Otherwise, the effect ends up being roughly parallel, which is not where you want to be. Yeah. So it, it's definitely a little sketchier than some of the other stuff I've picked, but I think it's very curious. And uh, I am going to see if I can snag a couple copies for myself. I'm not going to jump in on it, but I, I, I wouldn't blame you or anybody else for throwing $30 at this to mop up the existing foils and then testing to see what buy less do as a result. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so cheap that I'm willing to go with it. Like, let me, let me just quickly check here. What Abu actually card kingdom is probably going to be higher on EDH cards. What will card kingdom give us on, on this card? I'm guessing it's low so far. Oh, well, I mean, if I can buy them for a dollar 50, I expect that it's, you know, Nope, they're already they're already giving a, a dollar. So your backstop, two two thirds of your play is backstop. If they're giving a dollar, that means somebody's buying it from them, and they'll take up to eight right now. So you can you can get in on this for at least eight and know that the maximum loss is a third of your money. So that that makes me feel a lot better about it. Hmm. Okay. All right. So my final pick is going is easily criticized from the perspective that you're not going to be able to find this. <laughs> um, I waited a week too long to pull the trigger on Japanese battle bond booster boxes on eBay because I was hoping for a coupon. And then I missed the 15% off coupon last week. Cause I was busy doing other things. And um, you basically just can't find these anymore. Um, the couple of vendors that were selling them overseas have been bought out. My, one of my partners in the UK that uh, collects EU specs for me managed to get a couple boxes shipped to them for 125 US. Um, I think if you can track these down anywhere via a Japanese partner between, say, 125 and 150 shipped, you'd be doing very well. 
because this is going to end up being a two to three hundred dollar box in my estimation. This reminds me of like Japanese Eternal Masters, um, where the the Japanese are in the case of Eternal Masters, they absorbed a lot of the supply themselves, and the the people need to understand that with new box, sealed product. Uh, LGSs are not allowed to sell outside of their own country directly. So they can either do it indirectly through like shadow accounts on social media and selling platforms in North America, or sometimes you see judges get paid in boxes overseas and they bring them back and sell them on, on Facebook groups and whatever. Um, but in the case of battle, Japanese battle bond, it's very dry out there. Like you, it's, you're going to have a lot of trouble tracking down sealed boxes, um, so you really want to find, this is a good opportunity as any to get a point of contact on the ground in Japan and see if they can help you out from some local store that might have a box sitting on the shelf that nobody knows about yet. Yeah. I, I mean, <clears throat> it, you know, it's got the, well, of course this is a good pick because you can't find it problem. Uh, other than that, I like the idea. I've already picked up a good, a good chunk of battle bond foils myself. The set's been really hot in terms of, um, the singles market. People have been uh, been all over it. So, uh, I mean, there's not a lot to say here. It seems like if you can get your hands on it, it will serve you well. Yeah. So on that note, probably the most relevant thing uh, for us to discuss as pertains to Battle Bond is what's the resupply situation going to look like? Because currently I'm hearing it's very difficult through uh, the usual distribution channels to get for store owners to get their hands on more Battle Bond. And keep in mind, this was not an LGS limited product, right? This was available at Walmarts and so forth. Is that a question or a statement? A question. I don't know. I have to double check on that part. Um, but here's what I think. Here's my get, best guess at what's going to happen. There is going to be a battle bond resupply. Um, if it doesn't happen in the next like month or two, I would suspect that they do the same thing that they did with uh, Eternal Masters, where they re-release it near Christmas just to put another thing on the shelves for people to buy where demand will be rel- like pretty pent up by that point. Um, I would question whether there will be a Japanese resupply because everything I heard was that part of the reason it's so scarce over there is because they didn't print that much of it, even less of it than they normally would for a Japanese set because the Japanese are not so casually inclined. Um, and battle bond was very focused on, on casual and like, for instance, commander EDH is not a major thing in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I believe that this will be the le- the lowest print run of any set in the last few years. Um, but I think we will see some additional supply. If we don't, then I think we have to start looking at the non-foils of the rares and mythics that haven't gone anywhere yet, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the concern about a reprint is valid, uh, especially after they did it with Eternal Masters. They didn't do it with Conspiracy 2, did they? I don't remember. Like these types of questions, I, I, the type of I, I believe Conspiracy 2 yeah. was available through distributors kind of persistently. And I think that, that that scenario is not what Wizards wants. So it likely informed the decisions as pertains to the print run of Battle Bond. So Conspiracy 2 was printed at a higher level than demand ended up um, uh, supporting. And so Battle Bond is, was printed more conservatively. Um, that's a gold mine for MTG Finance, and kudos to everybody who got in on Mythic Foils early, um, especially on things like Bright Brightling, which were totally off my radar. Um, 
So, I mean, I'm curious to see how it plays out. <clears throat> I'm going to send a shout out to our vendor contacts on Twitter and we'll update everybody next week as to what they what their feedback is uh, in terms of how they think the availability is going to spool out as the rest of the year progresses. Okay. And I would be curious to hear that too. This is the type of topic that I would be happy to defer to the people closer to distribution networks since uh, they're going to have a much better idea of what's going on there than I certainly am. Yeah. All right. So next topic on the agenda, the Silver Showcase, which we meant to talk about last week. We were trying to get a guest on to go through it. Didn't all come together on time. So here we are a week later, uh, a bit late late to the party. Um, The Silver Showcase, for anybody who's been hiding under a rock, is going to be uh, one of the uh, special events that Wizards is running for the 25th anniversary of Magic the Gathering, which is going on all year. Um, This kicked off in GP Vegas with the uh, infamous or famous um uh beta draft uh that they did there um and for the 25th anniversary pro tour which is a team trios event where players will be playing standard modern and legacy there's going to be a side event that's invite only with only eight invitees um taken from the history of the game and they are uh they are going to be drafting beta again uh it is a no, it's like oh, beta, 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 antiquities, legends, Arabian Nights, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it is. So it's a a six pack draft, which showcases the earliest sets of the game. Um, and it's interesting that with six packs instead of the three we saw in Vegas, the decks are likely to be of a higher, a more interesting power level. Um, although they are not going to be uh, much more synergistic, that's for sure. Um, and. I think the weird thing here from the pros perspective was that this, uh, first of all, they invited the four all-time point leaders from South America, North America, Europe, and Asia um, for pro points. And then John Finkel, uh, Stanislav Sivka, if I'm not mistaken, a Czech player who was a major pro player for a while and now plays Hearthstone. Brian Kibler, who of course is pro tour uh, 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 hall of famer and is now most prominently known as a Hearthstone player, uh, streamer, and uh, commentator. And then they uh, invited Amaz, who is one of the biggest um, YouTubers and Twitch streamers for Hearthstone as well. Um, What was your initial take on the setup and details of the event? Um, I have a lot of thoughts. The first is that I am not fundamentally opposed to the idea of doing something like this. Uh, in fact, I think it's a good idea. The problem is that I think almost every detail it was executed wrong. From the sets that they're doing to the way the payout works to who they invited. It's like all of it is not quite right, um, depending on what you're shooting for. So as a longtime Magic fan, the thing that bugs me the most is uh, there are very limited number of packs of stuff like beta and legends and antiquities out there. This is not much of it. So the beta Rochester draft at Vegas was a lot of, was very exciting. People were thrilled to watch it because it was so unique and special. Like basically no one had ever seen it before and you didn't know when you would see it again. And now wizards is like, Oh, Hey, two months later, we're doing it again. Like you lose a lot of the, the, the character of that doing it so quickly afterwards. Um, 
So well, and would, and they're actually doing just to 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 fill that that uh, thought out. They're doing four total plus this one, right? So there was an unlimited uh, draft at GP Chiba last weekend, and I'm pretty sure nothing too exciting was opened there. Mm-hmm. And I think they're doing one this weekend in uh, South America uh, at the GP that's going on. And then there's another one, another beta draft at Gen Con towards the end of the summer. Yeah. And I know there's the one at Gen Con. So I guess their idea is like they're doing all these cool openings for the 25th year of Magic. Right. Uh, which, I mean, it, so if you're aware of like, oh, they're going to do like five big events over the summer like this, it may it works a little bit better if you realize it's part of a series. But even still, like the first half of this is there isn't that much product and you're burning through it really quickly. And it's not as exciting because you, it's not as exciting because you're putting them all done. You're doing them all at the same time. So it kind of sucks that you're losing the option to do these down the road when it would be more exciting again. And it's not as exciting when you do five of them in the span of four months. Like the first one was awesome because nobody had seen it ever. And now it's like, all right, we're doing it again. Like as a viewer, it feels less exciting. So that's the first component of what I find a little incorrect about all of this. I'm totally fine with, you know, them piling them on for in a six month period. Um, I agree that they get less exciting each time they do them. Um, you know, I, I didn't make a point of tuning into the unlimited uh, events. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm certainly, I will go back and watch a Twitch stream if somebody opens a Lotus or something. Um, but the, I, a bunch of the details bug me as well. So the set configuration is super haphazard. There's still this issue with, um, well, I, I think that at the foundation, the real issue here is that they are trying to both service the concept of attracting new blood into the game while also paying fan service to the existing players. And I think that that's where this event goes awry, is that it's trying to do everything all at once. Um, What I proposed on Mm -hmm. Twitter was that you split these out. Um, My idea is that you do two different events. One where you have an an invitational thing that is focused on, you know, all sorts of different people. It can be the NFL player that has appeared on multiple YouTube uh, events and been featured in various like GP coverage things, figure what the guy's name is. Um, but the NFLer that famously had his card stolen, um, the, you can have guys like Amaz who, I mean, I think was the primary needling to a lot of the pros is that this guy has not earned his stripes in magic. Like he's a smart guy. He's a great gamer overall. He's an important Hearthstone personality, but he is not an important magic personality because he's never won a major event. (laughs) So, um, uh, the people that are teaming with him, um, have said like his limited record might be better than theirs on magic online. So it's not like he is, uh, inconsequential, but this is an event that focused on inviting the most important players and personalities of all time. And I think there's something to be said for splitting out the stuff that is media friendly, new media, like new player friendly, that is meant to reach out into other spheres of video and or tabletop gaming and pull fresh blood in. And that event could have been, um, you know, playing for charity. Then you could have the invite the most important pro tour uh, players and hall of famers of all time. I think they got it right. Inviting the all time point leaders from the various continents. That seems like a, a solid move. And then I would say that, you know, John Finkel, Kai Bude, LSV, and, you know, make your argument for whoever the eighth body is. 
playing this other draft um, where they keep the cards is much more interesting because the the way they've got it set up now, um, the cards are being auctioned off for charity and there's a huge cash prize um, for the winners, which is super weird to me because the most exciting part of them opening the cards is how expensive the cards are, how rare and expensive those cards are. So if somebody opens a beta Black Lotus, what kind of feel bad is it that the only time in your life you ever draft beta, you open beta Black Lotus and it gets given away to charity? Well, yeah, and it's like, you know, it's not, <laughs> it feels bad like. You're going to shrug and be like, okay, that's super cool that it's opened, but the fact that I don't get to walk away with it is is like the the, the like writ large version of when you open an amazing sealed pool at a GP and have to pass it. Which, and so I will say that it's, you know, it's not that it feels bad. You have to give it to charity that you're giving to charity, right? Let's be clear. It's well, like, you're not, well, you're not giving to charity because it's not even, it's not your card. It's, it's, like, it, it's sitting in front of you, but you don't get to keep it. It's crazy. Yeah. But you, but you're getting the paycheck on the other side. So yeah. you're still making out. It's just not in the way that, first of all, it feels like it should absolutely be switched. And I saw people saying like, why aren't they giving the players the cards, which, you know, suppose you know per as far as wizards is forced to consider have no value or little value in the cash to um to charity so which is a really good question but what i think it's missed by that um is that for people like amaz and some of these other guys it's not necessarily worth it otherwise right if you are amaz and every time you sit down to stream you're making i don't know what a couple grand Every time he sits in front of his, in front of Twitch for several hours, or he has to book this weekend to go to this event when he could be doing something else. Um, you know, if you're telling him he's going to get the magic cards, he's going to be like, okay, but like, am I guaranteed that that's going to be worth anything more than a thousand dollars? Because this is not. Well, I mean, time. But keep in mind that in in my version of events, he doesn't get the magic cards because he's not in that draft. Well, it's sure, I, sure. I think it's, you're you're completely correct. So it's just like at different layers, there's problems. Like this event. If you, you, it makes sense. It sounds good to switch the price support, but you realize that if you switch the price support, it's not worth it for the non magic players to be there because they and should, they'd either be taking the day off or making more money elsewhere. You can still pay the guy an appearance fee to play in the charity tournament. Like those guys have set fees, they're agents, and you have to make the call as to whether or not that's going to be worth it for the brand. Yeah. And that's yeah. a, that's a, a relatively simple marketing decision that can be made based on the math. Sure. The, but I mean, if they were keeping the cards and Amaz is still in the draft, what bigger feel bad is there than Amaz opens the beta Black Lotus and everybody rolls their eyes collectively across the planet? Like, yeah. Of all the people to open that card, the last person we would be interested in that happening to would be the guy who has no history in the game right. of consequence. So, so, and that I think gets to where Wizards really bumbled this was you have a terrible mismatch of activity and uh, marketing. Um, who is the hell is this for? Like Rochester beta draft is, as you were saying, like this is for the most enfranchised of the enfranchised players. Yeah. Watching these games is awful. The beta, the actual games of beta played out at Vegas were bad magic. They weren't fun to watch. Like they're not good. Uh, so it's really cool to see the process, but you really have to appreciate the game in order to enjoy that. Uh, because limited magic is bad, period, and you're making it worse. So why are you inviting your 
like we're trying to get people out who are not already magic players to come watch magic. Why are you inviting them to come watch an event where you can't read the cards? Even if you can read the cards, you don't know what they do. You don't know what they do because they're a novel of text. Even if you understand what the text says, they're still mostly bad and very oddly worded anyways. And the games themselves aren't interesting to watch. So like this is why I, I, I love the idea, as you said, of like taking people like Amaz and the NFL player and all these guys and doing like this big, fun, exciting event that people can watch. But why would you give them this product to open? It's just a terrible mismatch. It just, just feels rushed. The whole thing feels very rushed. Like, oh shit, the Beta Rochester draft at Vegas was really popular. Let's just do that with the guys who we already signed up to come play. Yeah, it it, it confuses me because I feel like I understand that there was a bunch of different ways to do this, but when they sat down at the table, I feel like they could have logic all this out. Like they, they under by this point, after the last couple of years of like intense social media response to Wizards' decisions, and it really has been building as Twitter has come into its own. Um they the people in the driver's seat in their marketing program must have a handle on how these things will ripple through the community and and you you've got this weird situation where <laughs> to get back to the mechanics of the draft they're going to draft six packs the most exciting thing about them opening the packs is if they get to keep the cards but they don't get to keep the cards so now it's a draft that's twice as long as a normal draft that isn't a format that anybody watching can ever play. So it's not going to pull, and it's not a format they can replicate on Magic Online or an MTG Arena. There's nothing planned to do that. Like that would have been interesting, right? Like if on Magic Online, first of all, if Magic Online and Magic Arena had already been merged, which should have happened <laughs> if, they, if they were even remotely on the ball. Um, and on that platform that you want a bunch of people to come play that are already playing Hearthstone, you're going to give them a free coupon to come do the same draft that they witnessed. Now you're connecting the dots, but none of those dots are being connected. You can't play this format on either of the digital platforms. The two digital platforms are confusing enough to figure out if you've never played the game before, like which one am I supposed to be into and why? Um, and the draft is extra long, but they don't get to keep the cards. So now you're asking a, a player to listen to a bunch of commentary explaining what banding does, a keyword in a game that's already so dense that there's too many keywords to explain in a single sitting, but you're going to waste their time talking about keywords they can't even find on product they could buy. Like all of that makes no sense from a marketing perspective. And what they should have been doing is charity stream with M19. Amaz is at that table. Kai Bude gets invited to this other table and they draft the old school stuff and you can flip back and forth depending on what's interesting between the two. Right. And this this makes sense given Dominaria's massive media campaign. This is the direction they were heading. And marketing magic is in the pro tour and the high level stuff has been moving towards creating an event, creating uh, a spectacle rather than selling the path to the top, right? Like Magic's moving away from it, from their marketing being, hey, you can come play on the Pro Tour 2 to more about creating stories and events and things to see. Like that's, you know, just in the way that the NFL is not trying to sell you the, I, the dream of coming to play for them. They're just trying to sell you a cool event to watch. Magic's moving in that direction, um, especially with the way they've toned down the Pro 
to pare down the Pro Tour pairings or Pro Tour uh, benefits. They're clearly not interested in getting you to come play. They just want to make it exciting to watch. So this all makes sense in that in that direction. It's just such an odd pairing of it. And you know, this is this, and we aren't even really talking about the the pro players who are all really incensed that there has yeah. never been a higher value Magic tournament like prize pool value per player and <clears throat> you said you couldn't call like they had uh, wizards had talked about it so they knew this was coming and they're like okay what do i have to do to show up and then wizards is like oh uh actually you can't qualify you already did or you didn't and only four people got in and the rest and the other slots go to people who don't know how to play magic so like the pros are all really pissed off because they don't get to part- partake in this humongous value tournament but like that's not that's beside the point right that's just like that's just hand wringing by people who feel like they should be getting paid more for playing the game, which is, can be an entirely valid discussion. I'm not discounting it. I'm just putting that entire thing aside, whether you care about that or not, that's beside the point. Like this is poorly handled other than that. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's worth touching on that for a second. Cause you know, the, the play pro player response was largely that they felt like they got kicked in the nuts. Um, and I, I think that the smartest of the pro players are already have already realized or are realizing that Wizards is seeking to de-emphasize and undermine the pro tour as the predominant marketing, like public marketing vehicle and event vehicle for Magic as a whole. And we, this is in sync with what we've been saying for well over a year, which is that um, YouTube and Twitch streamers are already more important to the brand than the pro tour. Pro Tour only happens four times a year. It is only four weekends of opportunity, one of which usually lands in the summer um, when you're already in a summer lull. And it is so much less valuable from an event projection and viewing perspective in terms of the ability to attract people to the brand, to focus on 12 days that are very expensive to set up and run across the globe. You're paying for people's airfares and hotels at a certain level. There's a not large and esports arena size prize pool, but still a not insignificant amount of the budget. It's in the like millions of dollars um, that could be spent in other directions. And they see what's going on in on Twitch and in esports and the direction that that's all headed. And that, you know, the, 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 the casual streaming reach is so much more effective than, you know, competitive, competitive events. And that's not to say that you don't need a mix of the two, but they are certain you can pro players can and the magic community can certainly expect wizards to continue to experiment down this road. Like they had a paid sponsorship of a like (laughs) medium popular comedy channel this week where they had the guy just make fun of magic card names and pictures uh, for 10 minutes, um, which I found largely unfunny. Um, because I, I think that cultural commentary on magic cards is pretty tough if you're not already steeped in that fairly rich and dense culture. Um, but their experiment, they probably spent a lot of money on that sponsorship as well, because it was a fully sponsored piece. Um, and I understand from a pro's perspective why, why why they are disappointed, but they should expect more of the same and for it to get worse, oh, yeah. is my opinion. Yeah. Um, I think that the conclusion that Wizards is coming to is that encouraging players to build towards something competitively has value but it's possible that that could stop at the gp level and that the pro tour could be more of an afterthought um i I, so i will move on but i think the general thought that james and i seem to share is that it was 
no individual part of this idea is bad, but the way they configured all the pieces is just a mess. And they could have been served mm -hmm. much better by splitting this um, into a, an event designed to appeal to new players and an event designed to appeal to hardcore fans. So, so here's a, a, a parting note on how this could be configured in the future. Let's assume that you just get rid of all four Pro Tours. You still have uh, World Championships, um, but they are the Pro Point Series is basically GP finishes, and that builds toward Worlds. Yeah, just ditch Pro Tours. You just have basically one Pro Tour. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the the core premise of Pro Tours is to launch a new set, right? But because that's happening six weeks after every time, I, I you can no longer make that, you know, cling to that as a cogent argument. Yeah, I think that's fair because, you know, think about like other professional sports. They don't have four major events spread out throughout the year without a keystone event, right? Like the NBA finals and the Super Bowl and all that. Those are one time a year and you don't have things along the way that are like bigger events, but not all the way. So I like the idea. I think you play, you play your regular season and then there's a postseason. Yeah. So I, I think the idea of axing the pro tours in general, making worlds even bigger and maybe, so if you, if you ax the four pro tours, take, uh, 70% of that money and put it into worlds and take the other 30% and spread it out amongst the other GPs. You know, make the GPs a little better. Or, or uh, something. I'm sorry. Or something. Yeah. Or, like there, there, there's some, and, and I guarantee you that even if we've got the details wrong there and haven't thought through all the angles, those are the kinds of discussions they're having. And you can expect there to be further outcomes from that. Sure. So, you know, I guess, I guess I'm not sure how this impacts magic card prices today. Um, but I got to tell you, if you are trying to get on the Pro Tour, you need to take a really hard look at why. If, why you're, you're, a if you're a tremendous competitive player, your best EV is to get into MTG Finance. Seriously. Because, because the pro players that ignore finance as their, way, as their method through the game are completely disregarding the connection between their ability to identify hot cards early and turn that into them getting to play the game as a lifestyle. They, first of all, they're on the floor of the GPs more often. So they have more opportunity and access to spotting trends on the floor early and participating in them by buying and selling the vendors. They have access to more players because they're at more events. They have a better network with other pros. So they have access to information on the formats that they may not specialize in. So, I mean, the, the pros that, that, do focus on finance tend to do very well, even if you don't hear about them very often. Sure. Um, but I, I've talked to numerous pros who are zero percent interested in that or spend zero time on it, and I think that's got to be a mistake. Uh, yeah, definitely, no, no doubt there. But okay, let's move on. Uh, Legacy bannings, Death Rate Shaman, and Gataxian Probe out in Legacy. Um, a really big shakeup, but not completely unforeseen. Um, I know I have specifically talked about Death Rate Shaman probably getting the axe several times over the last couple months. Um, and I know people really close to the format were kind of inclined to say, no, 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 they won't get rid of it. But regardless, here we are. Uh, Gitaxian Probe along for the ride too. A little more surprising, I guess. Um, I, for me, seeing Death Rate Shaman go, the hugest issue here, is, or the most, the most prominent 
event is uh, Dredge gets really good again, at least temporarily, because now half of the format doesn't have a playset of cards that just randomly bite you in the ass. That's main deck, yeah. Um, and I talked about buying Lion's Eye Diamond on Monday. Uh, let's see. It was 230 when I told people that they should probably consider it. Looks like the prices haven't moved quite yet. I still really like Lion's Eye Diamond, by the way. Like 230 or so. The price is already up. Like it, it is already a good bit up from where it was. I still think it's good at 230, 240. This is a reserve list uh, card. It's the best card. On the premise that lands is even better. Yeah, on the premise, well, on the premise that not that dredge is better. Um that I don't think this is played in lands. It's played in dredge. Uh, and it's played in some storm builds. But it's oh, sorry, a, not lions. Sorry, I was thinking uh, Mox Diamond. No, yeah, yeah, Lion's Eye Diamond. Um, but it's it has a reason to be better than it was yesterday, and also is a reserve list card and the best card in a vacuum in Legacy. So I think this is a four hundred dollar card later on. It's reserve list, right? Yep. Yeah, sure is. It's got upside. behooves you to go read all of the articles from the pros about what they think this does to legacy and to keep your eye on the developing um metagame shifts on magic online via mtg goldfish as the pros continue to test towards the pro tour you want to keep your eye on you know what is this going to do to canadian threshold what's this going to do to death and taxes which cards that we may have mentioned or not mentioned are going to move and if you're on top of that um you know Legacy is, is definitely on, you know, in a holding pattern or on a slight decline versus other formats. You know, I'd still rather have more money in uh, Commander than I would in Legacy, but Legacy players do foil out decks and um, have supported ridiculous prices on things like Tabernacle. So um, definitely going to be some uh, solid plays on, on this format this summer. All right, so uh, two topics real quick. Um, Evan Irwin highlighted uh, a post on Twitter this week where somebody had caught new card backs seemingly on display in uh, Magic Arena, I believe. Yeah, that was Um, uh, Jeff Cunningham, actually. Okay. So these were like modern card backs that used the new logo, black with like silver trim. Um, And people started then speculating, are we going to get these in paper? We've been over this before, actually. Uh, I think nine months ago or so. Um, but just a, a quick recap, it's a marketing, it's a it's an operational nightmare for store owners because it potentially invalidates all of their existing inventory. If you start, uh, if all card backs past, say, December 1st, 2018 are using a new card back, one of the ways Wizards can alleviate it is making sure that all introductory products come with opaque sleeves so that the game is just a game you play in sleeves from then on. Um, so that the cards can all still be played together. And the only downside is everyone has to own sleeves. But, you know, think, you know, intro products can come with, you can get like an M box of M19 can start coming with a pack of sleeves or whatever. Um, That's all doable stuff. The, but that doesn't change the fact that people that are kitchen table slinging potentially out of sleeves at home, um, you know, have to buy into that process. And it's still weird to have, you know, old card back versus new card back. The other thing is if you're going to go there and switch the card back, now the, the, the door is open to change everything about the cards. If you're going to change the card backs then you can change the, the weight consistency, like the materials they're built out of. There's all sorts of things you can do or at least consider. And there's a lot of downside down that road. 
um, that may seriously injure the LGS. So I think net net, we can probably agree that we don't think they would do this. I don't. And I, you know, we talked about it briefly offline prior to the, uh, on Twitter the other day. I think there's a lot of room for, uh, for their, for that picture to exist. The, the different backs, the card sleeves, uh, the different card backs online. Um, and for the paper wants to continue having the same back that they do. Like there are various configurations of events that allow the, the moto, the, the MTG arena or moto card back to look different than the paperback. Um, that said, I know that wizards has probably been talking about this. They probably talk about every damn day. Um, the marketing, t- the design and marketing teams do because yes. from their perspective, it's a massive win. It d- if it didn't, if it didn't hurt the LGSs, it already would have happened. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, they one hundred percent would have pulled the trigger on this a while ago had had it not been what they considered too high of a price to pay to do it. Why is it any different today than it was? I'm not sure, but I guess you know without all the data, it's really hard to to say at times like how much it would matter uh, clearly it still does but it looks like they could be getting closer i mean you know if i try to be charitable about this you can think about it in the sense that it's a really difficult transition the first year like the first set that comes out it's a mess you get two years past that card back transition everyone who's playing standard uh everyone who who is New to the game after that transition has new card backs and it's never a problem. Anyone who's playing formats with the card backs mixed is playing in sleeves like your modern legacy EDH. All of these players are all playing in sleeve. There's not a lot of unsleeved decks of that nature occurring. So where it really hits you is people who are playing unsleeved with mixed age cards, which is like your existing casual base. But even then, some of them play with sleeves. I used to play with sleeves because I knew that some of my cards were valuable, even if they all weren't. Um, Not all of us did. um, And not all my decks were, but I did occasionally. But, you you know, then you just put people in a position where they're like, okay, like this deck I can play unsleeved because I didn't put any new cards in it. And then if I end up buying new cards for this deck, I have to get sleeves to go with it. Which I guess at the end of the day doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. you know, if you if you really drill down to like figure out who the different card backs impacts, it's not that not doesn't feel like it's as many people and that it's as egregious of an impact. Um, well, and and it's also like, why has Wizards never taken a bite of the accessory pie? Like, why? It's all just licensed to Ultra Pro, right? Yeah, like in a bunch of other companies, like Hasbro is a manufacturing organization. They can make sleeves <laughs> and they can place orders large enough to get a real economy of scale going. Yeah. So it's very confusing to me that they haven't been interested in pushing accessories harder for magic that they sell themselves directly. Yeah. As opposed, you know, I don't now we don't aren't privy to the licensing agreements. So we don't know, you know, what whether they're already getting an attractive cut that cuts out the the manufacturing and distribution and it's just fine. Like maybe the math just works yeah. in the licensing scenario. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have hard numbers on that. But um, here, here's where I would actually like to see this be teased and experimented. Well, can, I, can I get one last thought before you before you say that? Just one last thought. Go is for that it. You're seeing Wizards make a lot of pushes to get new players who aren't existing Magic players into the game. 
like the whole silver showcase thing and like inviting Amaz and Sifka and those guys. And if you think that you're going to be able to pull a huge influx of new players into the game who don't have existing magic collections, getting new card backs out there before they show up is in your best interest because then you have all these new players who are just showing up with the new card backs and don't care about the old ones. And, and there is some point where the the backs of these cards out there in public, the interpretation of them as being really old looking may either become more or less cool. <laughs> like it could either help or hurt the brand depending on how culture shifts over time. And, and that is not a super knowable quantity. But here's how I would like them actually to play with this because they've done this before. If newer players won't know this, but there was a series of decks called the World Championship decks that they were putting out every year for like four, five, six, seven years. I can't remember exactly how long it went on. I can actually see one over on my desk. And they were basically hand curated from the top 16 of world championships of a given year. They would pick the four most interesting decks that they felt defined the metagame and they would publish them for $10 a piece. And at the time, nobody really wanted them um, to any great degree because they had alternate card backs, so you couldn't play with the cards. But I think now we've moved into a collector mentality with the game to a greater degree. This is like 10, 15 years down the road. And I have a feeling if they were putting like the four definitive decks out of the year from various formats um, with beautiful new card backs, potentially some new art, and the um, at least considering using incredible modern card stock like you see in the Final Fantasy Tactics game, which is made of like a plastic. Um, they would sell like hotcakes. You could sell those probably at $29.99 a piece. And I think, or put them out as an anthology for like $100 a year or $150 a year. And I think they would sell right off the shelves as an LGS only product. Hmm. Maybe. I want to just go on record as saying, I really like the Magic Backs. I like them. They're cool. Like, I, I, there's no doubt I have an emotional attachment to them because I've been in there right since the start and they've always been the back. But when I look at the World Championship backs and then look at my Final Fantasy TCG backs, there's no question I want to see an experiment done where they push it to the limit of like what's possible now. Sure, I agree. I agree completely. That being said, by the way, that's that screenshot of like the new card back online that did not look good. I mean, it was more modern. Okay. I did not think it looked cool. It's OK. I, don't, I mean, the I don't, symbol sucks, right? Like that's just a bad symbol. Yeah, well. I'm fine with the symbol. It's the most graphic designers have take issue with the structure of that logo. It's unbalanced. Yeah. It's left to right unbalanced, which just makes no fucking sense to me because it doesn't need to be given the elements they have in play. Really? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it looks fine. Probably what's going on there is this is just like them doing their Hearthstone imitation routine where they're just going to add alternate backs to arena that you can earn. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Anyway, moving along. One last topic. Um, a couple of people um, that I follow on Twitter in the MTG Finance community that are I generally um, consider it wise to pay attention to if they <clears throat> are contradicting uh, things that I'm saying in public. One of them is uh, Paul Fuedo, who is, if I'm not mistaken, the ex-lead uh, buyer for MTG Deals. Um, I'm not sure exactly who he's operating with right now. The other is Monty, who you've had dinner with here in Toronto, who is a, a pretty major operator that all the vendors know and none of the players do, um, who flies around the world with Ed and, 
and is MTG financing all over the place. And both of them piped up to say that they thought that duels were going to peak in the near term and that they were probably moving into sell range. We're talking about revised duels yep. here. Um, and the, the logic here was <clears throat> relatively complex. It's a combination of the spigot on the crypto money maybe turning on or off. That wasn't really discussed in great detail, but I, I would imagine how much crypto money flows in, into reserve list cards will, has mattered and will continue to matter. But they were specifically referring to, I think, the process by which they had been acquiring duels and pushing them into Asia and it felt like there was now resistance and Asia had kind of reached a saturation point where they weren't going to be able to absorb much more of that product in the short term. And so they felt like the outlet that would encourage them to purchase in the West and move it to the East was not going to be as prevalent, um, which meant that they might retrace or stagnate and there was better opportunities. Okay. So the, basically though... The, the short version of this is that they believe duels are peaking. At least in the like the middle short term. to midterm. I'm sure long term, everybody would agree that there's still some upside. Yeah. Doesn't seem unreasonable. I suppose, you know, we had that very big run up. Pretty substantial. Well, underground Massive, right? I mean, you could get a year ago, you could get an underground C for 300 bucks. And now, you know, people have bought them as high as a thousand. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm in. Given the way how much of those cards move through sort of, I don't want to say like back channels, but channels invisible to most of the player base, um, you know, outside of TCG player and star city storefronts uh, and how you can see demand changing ahead of greater, you know, the, the tip of the trend you can see amongst those channels when suddenly the storefront and another country who has been telling you to bring them every copy you can get is now saying, okay, actually I only need 10 this week or, you know, what have you. Um, I could see that very much being a, uh, a bell, a four weather, fair weather. No, there's a term for this. The canary indicator. No, you know, well, no, cause that implies like death more like the, <laughs> the impending change. Sure. Uh, bell bellwether maybe sure so anyway i mean sig sig had pointed out from qs that he know you know he's obsessively tracking buy list and hot lists uh on card kingdom and abu not yes, unlike you were myself. Right, bellwether yeah uh yeah and sig pointed out that underground c had fallen off card kingdom's hot list or whatever um so it's possible that the buy lists have absorbed as much of that product as they they care to, and that now that the duels are two or three times more expensive in some cases, especially with the blue ones um, that are most relevant, legacy, old school, and vintage, um, that the you know we've talked before about how when a product goes up the price curve, a lot of bodies fall out of the market, and so the ability to flip quickly is reduced. Your hold times are extended, which is one of the reasons that sometimes you can get a favorable deal on like a five thousand dollar card from a local vendor if it's been sitting on, rotting on their shelves for months because the local demographics don't support its sale. You may be able to trade into it with a bunch of hundred dollar cards reasonably favorably on the basis that the the vendor is going to have a much easier time unloading the $100 cards. Yeah. One of the plays that you might want to start looking at if you're holding a bunch of revised duels then is, and, and this probably applies to some of the other reserve list stuff that's been, that might be peaking or has peaked locally. Um, thinking about things like 
I don't know, Bazaar Library, et cetera, Candelabra of Thanos, um, is to move into, say, beta duels or IECE duels. Um, IECE duels have definitely been on the move. They're the cheapest black border cards that you could possibly play in old black border duels that you could play in old school, where I think Channel Fireball is allowing them um, to make sure that they can like, uh, which is a shrewd move on their part, right? They want those tournaments to do well. Um, but the reserve list stuff obviously has limited supply and high price points. So if you want to bring fresh bodies in, they've got to have access to lower price duels and IECE provides that at least for some small period of time before it's extremely small print run is run up into the same territory as the revised cards. Um, or you could look at beta duels, which is where I've been retreating to with, um, some major buy list action this spring. Um, I've turned over about eight to $10,000 worth of buy listing into four major beta duels and some other stuff, um, including a couple of library of Alexandria's and so forth. Um, and I think those are solid moves. I, I, I wouldn't recommend, say, jumping out of your underground sea into some standard decks. Um, I don't think that is a great idea unless you don't have a alternative funds to play standard. <laughs> that would be quite a move, I have to say. I mean, it's not crazy, right? Like, if you happen to be sitting on an underground sea and you want to fund standard for a season. I guess. You, you can do money. it if you want to. I, I just... <laughs> to me, you're, 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 you know, you're you're paying not gaining in that instance, but sometimes that's the right move. Right. Um, I think the point here is the, the people in question that are commenting are in the know. They are privy to conversations and deals between vendors that we are not privy to on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so if they throw the flag up, it's usually worth at least considering what they have to yeah. say. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, okay. I have an appointment, so let's wrap this up. Where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDGPrice.com. I also did a uh, Twitch stream this week at twitch.tv slash MDGCritic that you can catch up on. Uh, I'll probably post it to MDG Price over the weekend, um, outlining the last 5 or 6K worth of specs that I brought in from Europe and a little bit from the US. So you might want to check that out if you missed it this week. That sounds pretty cool. I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twizzer. Tw I'm on <laughs> Twizzer. <laughs> Twizzer. Twitter uh, as Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price with the Watchtower series. And you can occasionally find me over on the webcast cartel aristocrats. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Well, I really enjoyed our time together this week, James. Nice, healthy episode for our listeners, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. Enjoy your beautiful summer afternoon, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.